So as I had them put together the preaching schedule, I realized I'd be preaching uh, this Sunday, next Sunday. Obviously, I began to turn towards those typical texts that you would go to at Christmas time through the Gospels, through some of the prophets in their prophecies of the coming Messiah. And then as the Lord often does in His providence, He laid out the schedule that we came to Genesis 3.15. And really, it would be a, a shame to pass this up as a Christmas text. And so we're going to look specifically at Genesis 3.15. Um, next week we'll finish out Genesis 3 and the whole context of the curse. But this morning, specifically just in Genesis 3.15. Hopefully, you, as we went through the theme of, of the service to this point, hopefully you'll see a focus on our redemption. Often it's, it's said that you can't appreciate the, the cross of Christ really until you realize your own sinfulness. You don't really realize the grace, the love, the victory won at the cross until you realize your own unworthiness and your own sinfulness. I would say the same thing is true about Christmas. You can't really appreciate and fully celebrate and sense the hope, the glory, the joy of Jesus Christ becoming man, Jesus Christ coming, unless you first can grasp and get a hold of, in a sense, of your desperate need of a Savior. It truly is the announcement of good news when we can put ourselves and realize we need rescued. It's more than just a, a nice story. It's more than just Jesus Christ showing some love. It is, it is us in desperate need, blinded, lost, in darkness. God taking the initiative, sending Jesus Christ to be our deliverer, to be our rescuer. Sometimes around Christmas time, the movies, it's kind of that Hallmark movie feel. And there's, there's such a sort of indated for this like feel of Christmas, you know, the Christmas spirit, the Christmas feeling, and it's, you know, everything is just the right lighting, and you got the fire crackling, and, and everything is just right in the world, and somehow there's always carolers outside, and, you know, it's just everything falls right into place, and maybe you have a couple moments of that throughout the, the Christmas season, but the Christmas story it's told, and there's a beautiful scene in, in Matthew and in Luke as you, you have the, the shepherds and the manger and the quiet, the, the quiet manger there, angels uh, announcing the good news to the shepherds. And there is sort of a beautiful, lovely scene and feel. But really, it is light invading darkness. It is Jesus Christ coming into a broken, dark world that is under a curse. That is under the fall. Jesus didn't just become man. He became man after the fall. It's a, this announcement, this first announcement, really our first Christmas announcement, if you will, in Genesis 3.15, takes place just moments after one of the most devastating scenes in history. Adam and Eve, they decided, as we've seen in the last weeks, they decided they would, they would seek for life and fulfillment and satisfaction outside of what God had provided for them. And in so doing, sin entered the world. And immediately there's devastating consequences for the decision that they made. And right on the heels of it, you now have God approaching them in the garden, and there's this kernel of grace. There's this word of hope. There's this seed of hope that is planted immediately after the fall. 
we can experience <clears throat> in our own lives that, that brokenness of a world, of, of a dark world that we live in. Things just don't work out as they should. We sense the injustice. We, we, we sense, sense the difficulty that can surround our lives. And in Christmas time, it's no different. And so we can have an understanding of Christ stepping in to a world that has fallen, a world that has turned upside down, as one who, if you notice that the third verse of that, joy to the world, he comes to make the blessings of God flow as far as the curse is found, to reverse the effect of the curse. But beyond just the dark scene, for us personally, I want us to, to look at it and realize today our own personal desperate need of a Savior. And in context of that, the announcement of hope and joy and peace with the coming of Jesus Christ. We come to Genesis 3.15. It's sometimes called the Proto-Evangelium or the first gospel, the first announcement of the gospel. You heard it read earlier. I'll read it one more time. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. Adam and Eve have fallen. We've seen the scene. The serpent comes and, and deceives Eve, and she partakes and then calls to Adam, and, and he follows, and, and he partakes as well. And immediately they recognize their nakedness. They recognize sin. They, 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 they realize shame. And the first thing they recognize is fellowship with God is different now. <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't dwell with God. I, I need to hide myself from Him. There needs to be some sort of covering. There needs to be something provided for me to be with God. Uh, I sought for satisfaction and for fulfillment fulfillment and to have my longings quenched outside of God and immediately they recognize the grave consequences of it and right on the heels of that is this announcement of hope is this promise of hope in Genesis 3:15 that indeed as we saw in Genesis and John 1 it is light invading the darkness John 1 verse 4 in him was life and the life was the light of men the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The announcement that a high priest is coming. <clears throat> so Genesis 3.15, I want to make just a comment on the text, and then there's four things I want to draw out of Genesis 3.15, and specifically as we think of Christmas and the coming of Christ. <clears throat> when you come to Genesis 3.15, there's this immediate... Promise, I'll put enmity between you and the woman. He's speaking here to, to Satan, to the serpent. So he just put a curse on the serpent. He'll, the serpent will crawl on his belly in the dust, this humiliation. And then he, he, he adds to it, I will put enmity between you and the woman. So very narrowly then, between Eve and between Satan. You think just a moment ago the relationship was one where she was enticed by uh, the serpent. That he, that he was offering, Satan was offering to her something that she felt she wasn't getting from what God had provided. And immediately she partakes of it and then she realizes that this was a terrible mistake and God's announcing now that there is going to be a change in relationship here. He is not your friend, this is your enemy. 
enmity between Satan and with Eve, and then it continues, and between your offspring and his offspring. And so now there is this announcement of there is going to continue to be throughout history enmity, warring between the seed of Eve, which we could just say humanity, and with Satan and and his offspring, which would be all darkness and sin and evil and everything that, that flows out of that. That humanity and evil and darkness and war, there's going to be enmity, there's going to continue to rage a war between these two. And then the promise continues, there's a curse and then with it comes this promise that from the seed of the woman, from the seed of Eve, will come one who will bruise the head of the serpent and from the seed of the serpent will come one who will bruise the heel of the of him. And so with the pronouns, you can kind of see what's happening here in verse 15. So it's between your offspring and her offspring. Then it narrows specifically to the offspring of the woman when it says, he shall bruise your head. And we know from redemptive history, this is an announcement of, of Jesus Christ, of the seed, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David, the branch of Jesse, the one who will come and fulfill the, the promised son who, who will finally arrive that announcement that we have in the New Testament from the angel. A, a seed will come, speaking then to Jesus. And so it gets narrow. He shall bruise your head. And then for the offspring, then it goes back to address Satan himself. And then at verse 15, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Satan, the works of darkness, will bruise the heel of Jesus Christ. And so that then is our context. And now there's four things I want to see about the promise of Christ from this text. First, number one, the promise of Christ starts with a curse. The promise of Christ starts with a curse. It's kind of odd, it's sort of ironic, but it is true. The first announcement of the gospel begins with a curse, and then it's coupled with that promise. It's interesting, as you track through, Adam and Eve make the decision, they hide themselves, and God comes in, you remember God asked them, well, where are you? What's going on? Why are you hiding yourself? Now, we know God is not, like, uncertain of what just took place, and so he's trying to gather information. That's not what's taking place. There is a, a level of of kindness and grace even shown in that. As he would still, even after they have uh, disobeyed him, have been deceived by Satan, God still interacts with them in that sort of personal kindness. And he extends grace in asking these questions. Then the excuses are made and it rolls out. And when we come to verse uh, 14, you see now because of it, God's going to pronounce these words. And you notice he... When he gets to Satan, he doesn't ask Satan any questions. He just pronounces a curse on Satan. He doesn't curse Eve. There's consequences that we'll look at next week from the fall. He doesn't curse Adam. He he curses the ground because of Adam. But there is grace shown there. Instead, his one curse is to Satan... And yet, in that curse, (laughs) there is a hope. There is blessing with it. 
As soon as the curse is laid down, there is a measure of hope for God's people. This is always continuing. I mean, you see in Genesis, beginning here, you'll see in the end of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, a familiar verse as, as Joseph's brothers in that story, they, they're going to murder him instead. They decide to sell him to slavery. They just treat him awfully. And as the story unfolds, you realize because of God's providence and where Joseph ends up in life, he's able to provide for his brothers and his family in a time of need. And God says, you meant it for evil, but I meant it for good. Taking that curse and from it reversing it, from it, from it producing blessing. From the evil that takes place, God works it and he turns it for blessing. So when we sing joy to the world, we hit that phrase, as blessings flow far as the curse is found. The announcement of Christ, the promise of Christ, starts with a curse, but it's a curse on Satan, not on Adam, not on Eve, grace is extended. Secondly, the promise of Christ is a declaration of war. So the promise of Christ starts with a curse. Secondly, the promise of Christ is a declaration of war. A God-inaugurated warfare on our behalf. It's interesting that after Adam and Eve's fall, he, he doesn't turn to them and say, okay, here's what you need to do to get back into my good graces. You need to do this and this and this and give them a, a long list of things. And, okay, you offended me, you sinned, but here is what you need to do now to make it right. Instead, he immediately takes the initiative to make it right himself. He takes the initiative for their salvation. So Adam and Eve have been deceived They've unwittingly entered into this enmity with Satan, an enemy they can't conquer. And God comes in and by initiative says, on your behalf, I'm going to war. <laughs> and I'm going to war with Satan. Look how Satan is described for us in, in, in Scripture. In Revelation 12, he, he's called the accuser of the brethren, or that ancient serpent. In the Gospels, Matthew 12, he, he's called the murderer of the hearts of men, our enemy, in John 8, Matthew 12. In Matthew and John, later, he describes as the prince of the power of the air, the prince of the demons. Hebrews 2 would talk about him as the ruler of this age. He is, he is powerful, he is strong, and he is out to destroy humanity. He is out to be their enemy. We recognize that enmity that, that was declared there in Genesis 3.15 and works out in Satan. We recognize it as, as ones who are redeemed and looking to follow Christ. We, we sense that spiritual warfare that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and, and, and evil. But you know, there's enmity there with all of humanity. Even for those who reject Christ and, and unwittingly have kind of submitted to serve the darkness of this age, they're still at enmity with Satan because in the end, they'll experience the curse. They'll experience wrath. Satan isn't looking to save them. He's looking to deceive them. They might be unaware of the battle, but they are still at enmity, and God declares war. When we think of why Jesus Christ came to earth, 
Just listen as these verses stack up on top of one another. 1 John 3.8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Matthew 12, Jesus binds and plunders the house of Satan. You remember that? In Matthew and Luke, it talks about the strong man. And the strong man has his house. And in that parable, the strong man is Satan. But one who is stronger comes in and he plunders. He, he takes out what that strong man is holding in bondage. That, that Jesus Christ and his authority and power comes in. Devastates the work of Satan. John 12, 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. 1 Corinthians 15, he will deliver the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Colossians 2, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, remember we focused on this passage in our Sunday school, looking at the humanity of Christ. He goes, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same thing, flesh and blood. He became man in order that he could die, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Romans 16 in that uh, benediction there, the end of Romans he says, the God of peace who will shortly crush Satan under your feet. It's a beautiful scene. Cattle lowing, nice manger, little barn, baby there. That baby is the king of light coming to invade darkness. War was declared in Genesis 3.15, and now the one has arrived who will take on and destroy the works of the devil through a humble life, an obedient life, a sacrificial death, and a glorious resurrection. The promise of Christ starts with a curse. The promise of Christ is a declaration of war. Third, the promise of Christ comes in an unlikely manner. Again, in 3.15, it's the offspring of the woman that will bruise the head of the serpent. It's, I mean, we're, we're used to the story at this point, but it is unlikely that Eve, the one who has just fallen, the one who has just showed that, that she has been deceived by Satan, that when God declares war, he says that victory will come through the seed of that very woman. It is someone who will come in human form to defeat Satan. It's just an unlikely way. And you see it build in its unlikeliness when you get to uh, chapter 4 and you see Adam and Eve and their offspring, Cain and Abel. I mean, that doesn't turn out real great as far as a, one who's going to conquer Satan. It continues then with Abraham, right? And you have Abraham and, and Sarah and then the promise of a seed. And, you know, they're old and they can't have children. And it seems on the brink and God miraculously gives them children. And then... What, like 15 years later, their child now is laying on an altar and God has told Abraham to offer this child as a sacrifice. And God delivers. 
gives a ram in the thicket to take the place of Isaac. And on and on it goes of, of where is this, this seed? It just feels like this isn't really the way that it should happen, that God is going to provide a deliverer through this, the seed of this woman. And it continues through the kings and the prophets, and there's all this disobedience and all these evil kings. And then you come to just 400 years of silence. There is a, a, a promise of a deliverer this most unlikely way. And that's the beauty then when you get to the New Testament and you get to Matthew and you get to Luke or to John and there's this proclamation then. The angel says to Mary, Behold, the virgin will conceive. He talks about the Holy Spirit placing this child in the womb of Mary. Again, I know there's like more miracles and things happening that we read in the Bible, but a virgin having a baby was just as incredible back then as it would be now. And in the most unlikely manner, God provides a conquering king for us, born in a lowly manger. And then finally, the fourth, fourth thing that we see here, is that the promise of Christ is a promise of death and life. It starts with a curse. It's a declaration of war. It comes in an unlikely manner. And finally, it's a promise both of death and life. It would make sense if we were reading Genesis 3.15, if he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head. And that were just the end of it. But there's that extra line. He shall bruise his heel. When you hear, there's not very many of us here. We'll do a little interaction. When you hear that little tagline, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, what verbs do you typically hear used there? Yeah, crush. You hear it, it kind of switched, don't you, where it says... You shall crush his head, and he shall bruise your heel. Now, because I know that there's a meaning, I think the NIV translates it that way. Um, There might be others, I don't know. But it's not inappropriate in the sense that there is a meaning that they're trying to convey. But it probably is not like the best translation model because that word, it's the exact same verb used twice. He will bruise his heel, bruise his head. You know, you typically wouldn't do that in English. Like if I said, um, like John ran to the market and Betsy ran back, you wouldn't just automatically assume, well, John jogged, but Betsy sprinted. You know, you you would take John and Betsy. That's Bert's co-workers there. I didn't even mean that that way, but... (laughs) Betsy sprinted. That's a funny picture. Um, so John ran, Betsy sprinted. You would just take it as run. You, you wouldn't you know, immediately assign different words. And so it's, it's probably more appropriate. Now, the, the word itself, kind of in its semantic range, you can translate it bruise or you can translate it crush. Both of those words are allowable. It has the idea of to, basically to strike a blow. And so you can see how they would get bruise or crush from that. <clears throat> the reason I know that what they're trying to do is, is to create the difference between the two, but I think it's unhelpful at times because we can read it and tend to think 
if it's, okay, he's going to crush the head of Satan and get his own heel bruised. Like, you know, that's not a big deal just to get a little bump on your heel, a prick on your heel. But the bruising of the heel of the seed, the bruising of the heel of Jesus, is he's going to die. He is going to suffer and die. It's not just a little... The difference comes as we think about the heel or the head. That is where we can see the difference. How would a serpent kill its, its prey? As a predator, it would hide, sneaky like it is in the grass. You walk by, it lunges at you, and venom gets your heel. That can kill you. And so when it says bruise the heel of Jesus, it's not meant to me like, oh, that does, that's meaningless compared to the, the head of the serpent. No, it's, it took the humiliation of Christ. It took suffering and anguish. It took all the way to the cross, Jesus Christ, dying there in pain, that he actually died, that he was buried, that he remained in the state of death for three days until the resurrection. The the promise of Christ comes with this promise of death. Now, the distinction between the two then is to think, okay, so if that's how a snake is going to bite you, is going to attack you and, and get the job done is to zip at your heel. If you're going to kill a snake, how are you going to do it? You're probably going to get something, pin it down. You're going to take the boot of your heel, and you're going to crush its head. Maybe even give it one of, you know, a grinding for good measure. And that's where the, the idea of crush and bruise come from, in that you can then, there is a difference being drawn here. You can recover from that heel. There, there's that strike. And yes, it's painful. Yes, we see what it is. It, it happens in the life of Christ. But it, it can be overcome. When you got your head ground into the concrete, there's no recovery from that. That's a final blow. So that's kind of why the bruise and crush, the way that works there. But taking them to realize that it is through death that you will have life. It is through death that you will have victory. As soon as the son, as soon as the seed is promised, with him is promised his death. And that death will be a victorious death. It is a poignant thing here. There's a curse on Satan, and there's this grace extended to Adam and to Eve. We see that really they will be delivered, not as they are cursed, but as Christ becomes a curse for them. Their promise of deliverance is through death. This is a Christmas story. Jesus Christ has come for us and for our salvation. He took on flesh and blood in order that he might die and by his death deliver us. And this death includes him who knew no sin becoming a curse for us. Jesus in the manger. The promise is right then he is going to become a curse for you. Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. 
so that as he hangs there, becomes sin, becomes a, a curse for us to the point where God the Father does what he never does to us. He turns his head and forsakes his own son. That is cursed. That is death. That is separation. That is feeling the full brunt of the curse. In order that we might have life. In order that we might know joy. In order that we might see the curse reversed. Yes, redemptively. As God continues to do his work. And as he will do his work. As his return. But we see it right now in our own hearts. In our own lives. That by his death, death is defeated and we have life. So all the way back, Genesis 3.15. The the very first kernels, the very first prophetic words of the coming of Jesus into the world. The first announcement of Christmas here. Jesus Christ, the promised one. Announced with a curse a declaration of war when he comes in the most surprising way that through his death we might have life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the truth of it. Lord, we thank you for this simple verse here in Genesis 3 and yet really the first gospel, the first announcement of the gospel of hope for us. Lord, we thank you for what it all means in our life. I'm going to invite the worship team up. I ask you just for another moment to remain sort of in meditation, thoughtfulness of Christ, his work on his behalf, especially in his incarnation. And in just a moment, we'll respond together corporately.